Lords, ladies, and lowlifes, I'd like to welcome you to the second season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. When my brewery was facing extinction for the third of five times, I poured my heart into a book by the same name and released it on Amazon and Kobo in August of 2021. That was my sordid tale about the mistakes I made and the punches I took over a 10-year career in craft beer. It was tough to write, but it was a story that needed to be shared, and it contained lessons I wanted to make sure others could learn from. I truly hope you grab a copy and reach out and let me know your thoughts. In this podcast, I wanted to share the stories of struggle, strife, and sacrifice that other owners and operators have experienced. Some of the content is emotional, and some of it is inspirational. And I'm confident that if you listen closely, you'll find all of it to be educational. I want to take the time to honestly thank you for being here, and thanks for listening, subscribing, sharing, and liking the podcast. With your help and the help of our guests, I truly hope that we can teach the world how not to start a damn brewery. Well, hello, cocks and chickens. Welcome to the first episode of the second season. Today, our guests are Mike and Justin from the as-yet-unopened Gather Brewing Company. Gather is going to be located up in northern San Antonio suburb of Universal City. It's going to be a medium-sized brew pub next to an Air Force base that plans to offer draft, cans to go, and not a single thing to distribution. Today we talk about what they've learned, how they've learned it, and how they plan to apply it when they finally open their doors sometime in November of 2021. We share each other's beer, stories about guns, stories about tasting beer with beards in it, and even hopes for a successful future. So my goal interviewing these guys is twofold. One, I hope they can provide some insight into what it's like to be in the middle of a build-out, still answering questions about how they'll run the business while being fully pot committed to actually running the business. And two, I truly hope to interview them one to two years in to shed some light on how their plans evolved once they opened the doors, what worked, what didn't, and what should have. Like Mike Tyson said, everyone had the plan till they get punched in the face. But that, fair friends, is a podcast for another day. For today, just kick off your penny loafer, sit back, and take a listen to my interview with the boys from Gather Brewing Company. All right, guys, I'm going to have you introduce yourselves, but I wanted to thank you for spending the time to uh, sit down, share your story, your insights, your experiences, but most importantly, for giving a furious fairy fuck about all the people that we're going to help today. Because the, the reason you're here is to give the insight into where you are, and that's a place that many people listening hope to get to, and there's a, it's a place that many people listening are uniquely glad that they're not at anymore because they're a few years into their career and uh, they you know, vaguely remember this time when they were about to start up their brewery. So, Mike, let's start with you. Tell the listeners who you are and why you're here today, and then Justin will go with you second. Yeah, um, I'm here because I'm starting a brewery, apparently. and uh, It would appear as we're sitting in it as it's yeah. at this moment. As far as it's gone so far. Yeah, I was in the military for 10 years, and my mother-in-law gave me a homebrew kit. So cliche, but uh, I started brewing some kit beers, and we moved to New York. I got transferred there, and we found out people paid $10 a pint, and beer tastes good. That's when we kind of, my wife and I fell in love with beer, and after one more move where I managed a restaurant on base in California, we decided, you know, getting to that close to the 10-year mark, like, time to get out or stay in. We decided to get out, moved to San Antonio, which is home for her and more or less for me, and start a brewery. Two and a half years later, we're getting close. Okay. How much longer do you think you have? Which we'll get into more in detail later, but roughly? Yeah. On on the bright side, six weeks, eight, maybe ten. On the dark dark side? (laughs) Yeah, I think I've had at least one person on the podcast who has said... uh, 
whatever you think it is, add thirty percent. Or the other people was an ish, throw an ish at the end. Yeah. Plus, yeah. plus so, or minus. Yeah, we'll yeah. start in twenty twenty two. Justin, why are you here today? Who are you? Um, my name is Justin, and I'm just an IT guy. I've been in IT for close to twenty years. Um, Mike's my brother in law, and didn't really get a chance to taste the beer until he came back from California to here and started homebrewing. He had already started, but when I started tasting the beer, I knew there was something something here with it. When we started doing a lot of the uh, pop-ups that we'll probably go into later, the amount of people that you saw supporting the cause for no other reason except that they were experiencing community, they were liking the beer, and they were behind some kind of movement that I saw happening. And that coupled with the fact that me knowing Mike and Rachel's kind of theory behind what they want to see happen here, it was just a great thing, I think, to get behind because it's more than just beer. It's more about community, you know, the gather name. And so I just started helping them in the garage whenever I had a free chance. And I found myself there more and more and more. We're in this building, tearing it out, gutting it. But watching the, the progress going from we're using these very, very rudimentary items to make something that people just love, um, it started making a shift in my mind. And that the funny thing is that Mike's beer is great, but he's actually a, a chef at heart. And so the food and the beer started becoming a thing that started building and building momentum. And seeing the people that just keep coming out, we had we joke about it, but the, the, the amount of merch that's been sold for a brewery that's not even open yet was just crazy because people just identify with something that might be a little bit different than they've been used to, especially in an area of town or San Antonio that doesn't have something like that. Just felt myself being propelled more and more into what what the cause was. So now I'm here and we're just turning wrenches and moving things, cleaning things, trying to get it ready to go. So I'll be helping out as much as I can. Well, so you mentioned the concept of the name. So let's, let's go right into that. Like why, why gather? What does that mean to you and what do you want it to mean to us? I guess a good way to ask that. I think it started when we started getting together with, well, before that, we, we always found, like my wife and I always found relationships, building deep relationships with friends and people we really want to kind of do life with or know on more than just like a we go and get drinks level at breweries and beer gardens. And so we were always gathering with people. And then when we moved to San Antonio, like Justin and Heather, Justin, my brother-in-law and Heather, my sister-in-law were some of our closest friends. And there's another couple we would like get together with like once a week. And we just started calling it Gather. Cause we just got together and it was, it was more of like on purpose. We knew like, you know, in order to be successful in life, you need deep relationships. And so like, we're going to do this together. And so we, we named our Facebook group gather, I think. And then that was just like, we didn't even have to think about the name. It was just like, yeah, it's going to be gather because that's who we are and, and what we're all about is people was there getting a, together. Was there a theme there? Was it just rotating houses or was it around a, a beverage of some sort or was it just always, whatever? Always around a beverage. But it was <laughs> a lot of it was who are you doing life with? Mm-hmm. And so it's having some sort of, you know, tribe of sorts that you're doing things that people are in your life. If something's happened or somebody's sick, then there's somebody checking on you. So it was a very churchish kind of thing in the sense that we're looking after one another. But it was... It was very organic, and I forgot that that's kind of where the name came from. But what stood out to me the most is when Mike and Rachel, and we were sitting down talking about 
kind of the vision of Gather Brewing Company and what does that look like, it was, we're not going to try to get people in and out. We want to have a setting here that people feel that they're welcome, that they can stay. It's not about turnover. It's, it's that beer garden sense, but on the inside. So it's that, that feeling and everything that that represents. So it's basically translating what we were experiencing with other couples and families and stuff. And we have a vision for that to happen in sort of a business kind of setting. So where people might experience something that haven't, you know, you might go to a bar or something else or a restaurant, but you, you might feel that need that, okay, well, you know, the waiter's looking over here. We've been here for a while and it's, you know, we're taking their, their time and their money. So we got to head out of here. Let's go on to the next thing. But it's very an all-inclusive space to just be and meet people. And hopefully you have people that are coming back because they've experienced that sort of tribal camaraderie, family kind of atmosphere. Yeah, and it really started in Jersey. We When I got stationed there, I was on a boat. I was in the Coast Guard. Everything starts in Jersey, doesn't it? Yeah, on a boat. And yeah. on a boat, yeah. <laughs> and so we, we were like right outside of Manhattan, like in Jersey City, and we moved across the street from the biggest beer garden in Jersey. We had no idea until that night when we heard them. But yeah, it, it, it gets loud every night there. They sat like 800 people. It was 800? Eight, yeah, 800 people. And so we, we love the fact that you come in there and we would like be there with friends and eat lunch. And then we would find out like, oh, it's dinner time. We've been like slowly drinking throughout the day, had lunch, and then now we're ordering dinner at the same place. And we've just been having a good time. Like we're not, I, I like watching TV, but like when I'm with friends, we weren't watching TV or anything. We were like really talking and having a good time and connecting. And so that's where we like got the vision of uh, this is what we kind of want for our place. That's the passion, the vision, the fun stuff. Yeah. Now the shitty part. How'd you find the money? How'd you uh, how'd you decide on the ownership structure? Like all the logistic part, right? Yeah. So I am very fortunate. Um, I won the lottery. Congratulations! I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't even believe me. <laughs> Actually, you'd have uh, led with that. I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In a way, I won the lottery with parents. So my dad is a lawyer and had the funds to help me start up. So I kind of kept on selling. I'd invite him out to lunch and I'd like sell him at the brewery. And I think he got tired of hearing about breweries. And finally he was like, we started shopping for a building where I did and sending him links and stuff. And there was actually a place, a street over, it was like a warehouse and not well suited, but I was just desperate to try something, looking into like how much the middle buildings cost, where can I get it planned? Yeah. And so he actually found this spot there. It was up for rent. And so we went to them and offered to buy it. And it started to become like a better deal for both of us because he was lending me the money to start it. And being that it's a family loan, it's, I mean, you can't beat 0%, right? So uh, I was very fortunate in that department. And then the city, we actually, when we were, we were looking at this building, we went to the city to find out if they sons will build have incentives or want to rebuild an area and offer money. And um, Universal City, we went to the Uni Economic Development Council. They heard our business plan and what we want to do with the place, and they awarded us $200,000 for the build-out. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so once it's done, you know, they're going to give us that money. And so my dad being the building owner and me being the business owner, that was kind of a good deal for him. And then he's helping me out start the business, and which sold our business to the city. And then later on, when we started getting construction bids and COVID prices, we found out we need more money. So we went back to the city and they- 200 is not, not they, much to finish the whole thing, but, but sure, <laughs> it'll get you started. Yeah. I thought I could do it for 180 initially, but they ended up 
at $500,000 the second time we went to him. So that was, yeah, a huge incentive on his side for being, you know, yeah. a, a business, a building owner. And then he's helping me out with the business. So that's definitely something you see more and more. And so if you are listening to this and still think about open a brewery, for sure, check with your city. Cause when we were starting in 2011, 2012, you know, you'd hear about a story once or twice of people doing that. But I've heard of at this point, cities here in Texas that'll even, they, they own the building and they're just going to give you free rent for five years or, you know, which is ultimately the same thing if you do the numbers or whatever, but just being able to get the city to be behind it in, in any way financially is great, but then also to be able to tell that story, like everyone that sits at your bar is going to be like, oh, you mean the city's behind this? I guess I should be here too. Mm-hmm. And so I think it does help overall, which is that community thing. And obviously if you're going for the place people will gather, kind of fits, right? Yeah. And also I remember in the very beginning with the tastings in Mike's house, he would come and see kind of the response. And I think that was some of the impetus behind there's something here because he might not be a big beer drinker. He would have some or whatever, but seeing the response to the people, to the beer, into the environment, into just that community, I think that was like a, a big helping element that was just like, there's something here. And I think if we can also partner with the city for those sort of uh, reimbursements, then it was, it was, a, it was a, but that, I feel like that was a big mind shift change for him to see how much response there was for what his son was producing. It was, it was big. And yeah. he liked the food. Yeah. The food is my strong suit. I've, you got, you got I was a chef for 10 years. And so, yeah, he liked the food. Yeah. So how did you decide on the brew house? And so the obvious question is, Hardly anybody did, but I'm curious if you maybe did. So did, did you like project the amount of beer that you intended to sell the first year, the production size you needed to do that, enough tank space to match the taps that you were planning to have and the beers you wanted to have on the first year, which is a hell of a spreadsheet and a, and a learning curve that uh, if you aren't in the industry, sounds like a bunch of fucking gibberish. But anyways, I'm just curious how you picked your equipment. I, uh, I didn't make a spreadsheet. I used one someone gave me. And I found out I was going to be a millionaire the first month I opened. So that's why. Oh, I'm, can yeah. I have that spreadsheet? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so when we first decided to do this, it was like we went under contract for the building. We were still in the option period. And I went to a program put on by Tom Hennessy at Colorado Brewing in uh, Montrose, Colorado. And it was like a three-day crash course, one-on-one. He's one of the early guys in craft brew in the early 90s. And he's owned and sold 14 breweries and is parented in quotes over a hundred. So it was, it was really cool because he's, he's a big, he, he's big into like the Franken brew, like, you know, using a, a, a a milk, uh, container for like your mash ton and, and just like piecing stuff together because you can still make beer on cheap stuff is his idea. Especially with a production brewery, the rules are a little bit different, but yeah, (laughs) with with what you guys are trying to do, you have a showpiece Mm -hmm. here and that is a different perspective. If it was a, dairy tank with spotted fucking um, cow, cow design on the side. That's a little different, but yeah. Yep. But. Yep. So, so we, we took some of what he has and incorporated it. Obviously we wanted to look appealing to customers and be interesting. We really wanted the brew house and everything behind the scenes to be as transparent as possible because people are here to see a brewery. I was even disappointed. There's not a, a window into the kitchen because I really like it, when you can see kitchens and know how people are treating your food. But the people in the kitchen hate that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So anyway, we, we did that course, and that's when we started. I mean, he opens his books up and shows us his numbers, and this is, you know, what you don't do, this is what you do. You don't need to spend the money here. 
that kind of stuff. And so, quick question: How did you decide on that one versus? Most people will tell you that you know we went to Siebel or went to. Uh, there's a few colleges, I've, at least six or seven I know of now, um, to learn the brewing side. But and this is something we've talked about in other podcasts. They don't talk about the business at all, um, which is obviously not, in my opinion, a holistic version of, of how you should run a brewery. So how do you find? How do you decide on that one versus one of the ones that maybe somebody else had been to? You probably talked to cheaper and faster. It was cheaper. Yes. So I, I think it was a few thousand dollars. Hmm. I don't know, just the, the one-on-one time with, actually, Justin and I both went to it. I think I'm friends with Tom on Facebook, but I actually don't know anything about this thing, so I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> it was a whole story even getting there. I was yeah. I was arrested on the way there. <laughs> really? I went, I went hunting over the weekend, and uh, I was cleaning deer all day Sunday. I was supposed to fly out Monday to this crash course. I had left my 9 millimeter in my backpack and went through security, and TSA didn't like it. They didn't like it. There was one in the chamber. And so they put me in handcuffs and Justin was sitting there like, what has this guy done? He didn't know what was going on. And so he just took pictures of me as I was walked away in handcuffs. I ended up getting there later that day. I was out there that day? Yeah, they, they took me off the flight, but I got a flight like later that day. That's an attorney. That probably helps. Yeah, I don't know. a buddy of mine uh, who actually lives here in this area, maybe 10 minutes away, he did the same thing on the way. And this is, uh, Kelly, I apologize. I'm telling you, tell your story, but on the way to the Super Bowl, and did not get to go and lost his tickets. Um, you know what I mean? Basically, the whole trip was fucked. Like, yeah. oh, I know. What a nightmare. I have not talked to him since, but I know that there was. A, he was fighting it. I mean, definitely, it's not something that goes away overnight. But yeah, I mean, for I me, I got lucky because I was Homeland Security, and so I definitely played that up. Yeah, you know, Coast Guard. I know better. Say, Why would I do that? Here's my ID. Where you know, and I never got the bill that everyone gets in the mail. So well, I was I was on the other side of security because I already gone through, and I'm sitting there, and I just see the swarm of people come in to put handcuffs on him and I'm over there zooming in, taking pictures, sending them to his wife and my wife. And I was like, this is what's happening right now. And I'm trying to text him to say, what do you want me to do? And he's like, just go ahead and go. And I had run a marathon the day before. So my legs were just done. And I'm, it's his only marathon, by yeah, the way. Don't get well, me. What was your time? Um, it was under five hours. That was okay. my, that was my, my goal. So I get there and I got I to gotta carry our, because we, we wanted to save money on baggage, so we just put everything in one big one. <laughs> so I get to the gas station, because in Montrose, there, you have to like walk out to a gas station to get an Uber. They don't come into the, into the airport. And I'm just walking through this gravel parking lot. My legs are killing me. I'm carrying this big backpack or luggage, and I'm sitting there waiting for the Uber. It's like one Uber driver in all of Montrose, and she shows up. So I'm sitting in the hotel room for like four, four, four to six hours, and then Mike shows up, and I'm just, I'm just done. But the pictures of him being arrested were gold. I'll have to show you later. <laughs> that's, awesome. that's awesome. We may actually link those in the show yeah. notes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you get to Colorado. You mm-hmm. learn how to make... Not only make your run a business uh, in yep. beer, and then uh, decided to pick some equipment. So how did you decide what to pick? Um, he ran a seven barrel system and a fifty seat tap room. He had really great profit. You know, like I said, he opened his books and we saw what was going on behind the scenes, and and so it seemed like the sweet spot was like a seven to ten barrel. I did a lot of. Um, I don't know if you've heard of ProBrewer.com. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I, I did a lot of uh, just snooping around on forums and seeing what people were planning and seeing what other people told them not to do. And I I quickly knew I didn't want to do like a three and a half barrel. Initially, I wanted to just like just get open, just put it all together and get open. 
but I knew like seven barrel was my minimum for wanting to make an amount of beer that just selling to the taps made sense. And definitely going up there to Colorado Boy, um, I, I knew that I didn't want to be in packaging. I didn't want to be in any kind of distribution. Actually, we'll get to that in more detail, but why? Um, because on the scale that I, first of all, it doesn't do anything for me knowing that a customer bought something from a cooler at a gas station or at a grocery store. It doesn't do anything for me. What I like is seeing people enjoy something maybe new or something they've had before, but they're enjoying it in the environment that we created and um, providing like an experience for people to connect, like the whole idea of gather. And so I, I never even explored going into packaging. Um, at the little bit of canning we'll do on our little $600 canner <laughs> is going to be out of the, out of the front doors and that's it. Um, what's the $600 October? No, actually, um, the cannular system for more beer. Mm. Okay. One button works great. Essentially a crowler. Like, kind uh, of? 16 ounce cans and crawlers. Yep. Yep. Okay. yep. So yeah, it, just, it was never a part of like what we were passionate about. And I, from what I've learned, you got to do what you're passionate about to be successful in it. And so we're just going to go to the taps. And so I felt like seven barrel was good enough to supply what we sell out of the taps. And that's what we stuck with. Yeah, it makes sense. If you listen to more and more of the podcast, I think what you're going to hear repeatedly, and I'm really curious to see how this goes on the next 75 episodes, but the distribution model seems to be the most hated model in the beer industry overall and even the guys who are doing it and what you would think is doing well or are doing well they um, are not making money and they consider it a marketing expense and so at some point why would you want a three and a half million dollar a year marketing expense that you know breaks even every month what that's a channel of your business that makes no sense and so Again, we'll see how that plays out, but um, so far I would say that's prescient, so we'll see. So at this point, you guys are obviously early. You're six weeks from opening. Uh, you do have a website. You've done pop-ups. You have a Facebook page. Admittedly, uh, you actually are on Untapped as well, which I don't know if you do that. But you have done some branding, some marketing. You have names for some of your beers, although, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I, did, did you name them at the pop-up, or are they just basically Belgian yeah. Triple, or I, th I think you... Yeah, we named them Belgian style triple, Belgian okay. style quadruple. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so we don't really have. We got a little creative, but that's that's one thing that we're still sorting out. Well, so that's a. So this is a question that I've asked people. My job is to ask people who have also gone out of business. So you guys are before that, and even those people haven't necessarily been confident in some of the choices that they made. So I'm curious what your thought process is on the, the naming of the beers. These, in my opinion, there's two different schools. And there's, you know, anything about my beer. All of mine are the most obnoxious, pretentious, esoteric names ever that are, you know, people don't know how to say them. They, um, but in, in, in the ones they do know how to say are usually vulgar. They don't know if they want to say them. And then you've got guys who are just doing IPA, uh, Belgian IPA, um, you know, whatever, Pilsner. And I don't think anything is necessarily better than the other, but each one has to fit the overall model for what you're trying to do and the overall brand that you're trying to create. So what is your plan and like what conversations have you had around that, I guess would be a good question to ask. Yeah, um, I'm open to feedback right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right now, I, I kind of like just naming them. In fact, this is what they did at Colorado Boy, but they just naming them the style that I'm selling instead of an actual beer name because I feel like I can play within the style a little bit, but if I do a beer name, they're expecting 
the exact same thing. And if I accidentally make something cool in that beer and it's hard to reproduce the next time, it's, it's tough to go back to that one name because I'm really tied to it is my thinking. Sure. But my wife wants to maybe involve the employees in naming beers or, or even customers. So we're not, we're not entirely sure what we're going to end up at. Well, yeah. I would, I would agree with what you're saying. And I would tell you, I'm the ghost of Christmas past a little bit on that one. So uh, the reality is I hate making the beer the same way every time. For me, it makes it less interesting. So a lot of things like right now fermenting in my brewery is a eight month old barrel aged uh, wheat beer that was re-fermented with strawberries and vanilla beans. And this is the sixth, I believe, release of that. And every year it's slightly different. Uh, this year I did three pounds per gallon and I've done as low as one and a half pounds per gallon of fruit. So it just depends. And the, the reality is that's me and that's my brewing style. But if you if that's not your brewing style and if you're more like scientific based where every time I brew my uh, lager, it's got to be 11 Play-Doh. And if it's not, I, I think that that is like a personal failure on my part. You're that science brewer who has to like almost validate yourself through hitting those numbers. Mm -hmm. Then I think you need to have a name and a, like a specific reason to tie to that. But I don't think either one is – well, I should clarify. I do think one is better than the other uh, from a business perspective. <laughs> Artistically, I do what I do. But business-wise, I think you make more money by creating the same thing every single time and have somebody come back for it. But you've got to name it based on your brewing capacity as well, capability as well. I say. Yeah, I think we've discussed a couple – if there's a seasonal thing that we're going to try and it might be something that might be a one-off or something that's clever – or something that's a name that you can tie to it that doesn't necessarily uh, speak to a specific flavor that you have to expect every single time. So we've gone through those processes to try to iron out. We came up with clever names, but that a lot that a lot of times was for the pop ups, and you know we're mm. writing up on the board, so it might be it might be different. But um, yeah, I think that you don't want to back yourself into something that everybody's expecting. If you're not going to produce it consistently, yeah. you're about to get introduced free beer minute. Yeah, we're, we're thinking about doing a special when the train comes by. It's about to be deafening in here. Oh yeah, is it? Yeah, I heard it a little bit, and I'm so disappointed. I've only had one other interview that had a train there. It's the choo-choo moment. Well, I guess two because the other one came out this weekend. But yeah, it's it's random and loud. That's what we say. Well, my buddy Nick used to do something at uh, Old Main where it was like free. It wasn't a free shot. It was some sort of shot or something every time a train came by. The fucking train by like once an hour. <laughs> so he was always hammered. But. Yeah, this isn't going to work if it's going to be... I mean, it, it just seems like it's it's off and on for consistency. Well, so if uh, if we're going to do train minute and we're going to pour your beer out of a growler, again, I don't usually... I, you know what? I, I should stop saying that. My original intention was that I wasn't going to drink a lot during these interviews, but apparently I've said that more often than I thought I would. <laughs> so clearly I'm drinking. And, Anyways, I may delete all of that. Point being, tell us about the beer. This one is, uh, I was trying to remake one of my favorites, and I was sadly disappointed because it didn't come close to it. My favorite, probably my favorite beer is Allagash Kuro. I mean, it's a, it's a Belgian-style triple aged in a bourbon barrel. It came out all right. There's some, some things I don't like about it, but that's essentially what it is. And this is always fun for me because I'm the worst. I actually don't drink my beer at home at all. I have stolen cases many times, and I'll, I, I have a big-ish wine cellar in my house, and I have a lot of my beer in it, and I never drink it. I use it for samples, and the reason is I'm hypercritical. Like I, I'm never happy with it. It doesn't. And I have some. We'll, we'll drink some in the next episode or next uh, section. What What's wrong with it? 
to me, there's a there's a slightly chalky mouth mouthfeel at the end, which I would love to identify. And that's just me. And I've asked people about it; they don't, they can't taste it. They're like, "Oh, it's great, whatever." Did, did you taste it pre bourbon? Yeah, I did. It was still there. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then the I, I think I don't know certain things about a barrel accentuate. Is that a word? Accentuate certain aspects. Two C's, I believe, is in that word. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, well, it'll highlight certain things about, so the, so the beer I put in there is really going to be the deciding factor if it's close to what I'm looking for and just adding bourbon to it isn't going to really change it to what I'm looking for, which is my favorite beer. So comparing it to that side by side, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. The, so the Belgian yeast character isn't up front. Sometimes it isn't a triple, sometimes it's not. So mm-hmm. was it in that one? I, haven't had I, I don't. I don't like a, a heavy Belgian yeast character. Like the, you can call it sweetness, or I've heard people refer to it as toothpaste. I like it a little bit more on the peppery side. Yeah, you even get like a sock sometimes. Like you have like horse blanket or whatever. But sometimes Belgian yeast can just do weird shit, mm-hmm. uh, especially if you ferment hot. But yeah, yeah, and I try not to with these. I I keep it in the seventies. And keep in mind, I make mixed culture beer with proprietary yeast, so I really don't know how to use all the other yeasts except for by yeast thirty sixty eight, which is the one that I used to use. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I have brewed some Belgian beers, but I'm by no means an expert. I'm just a fan, but I like it. But I see what you're talking about. There's uh, like on the back end, the finish isn't crisp, but it, mm-hmm. it's not unpleasant. But you could do better, sure. Right? Yeah, yeah. The crispness is something I'm looking for in a. And a Belgian. I really like the peppery, crisp Belgian beers. Yeah? Yeah. We're good. That was a nice little break. Hopefully a train comes through again before we're done. So on the equipment size, you got what you feel like you need. Anything that you feel like you didn't get that you're hoping to get in the next round of capital calls? I have a lot to get as far as all the accessories, setting up water, my water blender. There's, there's a lot of different things that I need to still purchase, but it's... The small stuff. Most of it's there. Um, my glycol system is something I'm tackling next week and not looking forward to. But um, your big glycol system? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. As far as for the brew house goes, I feel like once it's done, I don't really have anything planned to take it past where I'm at right now. A lot of people do the hard piping. I'm I'm not a fan just because I like taking everything apart and cleaning it every time. So I'm gonna soft pipe everything. It'll be a lot of tri clamps every day. Yeah, that's what we use. It's not the end of the world by any means. It, uh, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass after 10 years, but you got a little time for you to cranky about it. And by that point, you'll hire somebody and you'll have nine locations if you know big deal. Does the train keep coming back and forth or is that my imagination? Is the beer that good? It sounds like it's backing up. Well, in that case, I'm going to take a quick break. There's some questions I want to ask you about specifically what you learned with talking to some of the other guys in the area. I know you came by my brewery. I assume you went by other ones. I hope you did because that's part of the way I want to talk to you today. But uh, let's take a quick break, and then when we come back, let's talk specifically about some of the stuff you've learned talking to other people. All right, welcome back. Thanks for staying with us. We just poured a glass of a barrel-aged wheat beer, dry hopped with a mixed blend of hops. And so we're starting to have a little fun, starting to get a little bit light, starting to get uh, ready to go. So A little bit. Tell me a little bit, the point of the podcast, the point of the book was to create content that the new guy can use. Um, as much as I think that there, there are many old guys who also should really, really uh, learn the content that we are providing, ultimately the point was for the, for the next generation, so for you, right? Mm-hmm. So when you've talked to other brewers, when you've visited other breweries, 
when you guys have decided that, okay, I'm gonna, we're gonna make a brewery, it's gonna be Universal City, it's gonna be badass. What, what kind of feedback did you get and what lessons did you learn that you talked to you know, XYZ brewery in whatever city and you were like, holy shit, well, there's no way that my bright tank's gonna be upside down because that would be stupid. <laughs> Obviously an egregious example, but what did you learn? I think everything was positive, so I wish that there was a little bit more transparency like your book provides. But I learned a lot about mostly packaging, your barges are better to the taps, stay away from uh, going through a distributor. Stay away from. Going, okay. going through a distributor. Stick to what we're passionate about. Stick to the beers that we like because there's a lot of breweries out there and we're going to be more successful if we just are who we are in what we brew and what we give customers. So... I'm doing that with the beer, the food, everything. Like my my wife and I first fell in love with Belgian beer. And so we're going to try to brew those styles. Probably 75% of our taps are going to be that style. Just because that's what we like. If I brew what I like, I think I'm going to keep on getting better at it, perfecting it, and stay interested in it. And so I'm going to be better at that style of beer instead of just trying to throw something out there because maybe this will sell or this is what customers are wanting. But my passion's not behind it. I think it's going to show. Sure, which I'd agree with as an artist as well. Couple questions there. One, no one suggested you go to distribution. <laughs> Literally no one. Um, and even hate, people who are in distribution. <laughs> and I hate to, so I should clarify. So one of the points of this podcast, and I've made it, for my personal thing, and I haven't really put this out there, but I, I don't want there to be a goal. And so I, I'm not trying to go out there and say, okay, you know what? We're gonna rip distributors apart. And so ultimately, I don't hope that that's the case. And so when I ask these questions, sometimes I'm hoping that you're gonna be the one guy that's like, no, 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 trust me, it works in this situation. That being said, so literally no one told you that distribution was the thing that made them profit and that you would be stupid not to do it. No. In fact, the most of the breweries that I visited and, and talked to owners at were in Colorado. And everyone, I mean, usually it was on a smaller scale, 10 barrels or less. Everyone was, yeah, your margins are at the tap and be careful of distributors. So I never had the desire to do it in the first place just because our passion is, like I already said, seeing our customers, developing relationships creating environment in our brewery. So yeah, we always wanted to sell our beer to people that we know or hope to know. And that's always been what we wanted to do. And and I think going to that crash course in Colorado kind of firmed that up for us because they've been successful on a very small scale and profitable. And they, you know, not, with only not, 50 cent, 50 seats in the tap room, they've, they've done well. Not to beat a dead horse, but do they distribute? distribute? <laughs> they, they don't. They have a small cooler up front with crawlers in it, and that's that's it. So they, they, they sell beer to go, to, to go, but that's it. And so when you say you talked to some breweries in Colorado, you uh, went on a bit of a Blitzkrieg tour of Colorado, did you not? Yes. It was mostly breweries, a couple dispensaries mixed in here and there. and. Oh, did you learn anything from the dispens dispensaries about how to make beer? I think they need they need more people working there. There's too long of lines. I, Once my, you're in my there, experience it's is that they're they're kind of slow. Like when you go <laughs> very slow, <laughs> everything's slow motion. 
You said that you were going to make beers that you liked and that you were inspired by Belgian beers. And so this is one of the things that I think, again, I don't have a concept for the podcast really to, un I don't know what it's going to unpack, but I think one of the things that it does is you have to have a core skew, um, at, at least at distribution. And I would argue, I think you're going to need to have that at, over the bar as well. Something that, you know, not a Michelob Ultra, but at the same concept, like something you can do volume on and that that's sort of choking the brewery because people just can't drink enough of it. And we can both agree that I think the Belgian triples and quads, while we love them, are not going to be that. Do you have plans for a beer that's going to be more of a volume producer for you? So my, my plan is the Belgian triple. <laughs> I love it. So there you have it. Come to gather and we're going to have a good time. Yeah. So and, and my whole concern with, with that is, you know, on the low end, you'll see 8%. It's, it's up there. And so how do you get a customer to drink? Well, more than three of them and not have to worry about them getting home safely. Um, that's, that's the issue there. Well, it's funny you ask that because a lot of the times when we had the pop-ups, <clears throat> we would get people that would come up that had no idea about craft brew. And mm -hmm. one of the questions that I would ask when I'm serving beer is, what do you usually drink? And we usually would have enough of a, uh, an assortment that I'd be able to pick based on what they usually drink to hand them something and... A lot of times, he says the triple, and we laugh about it, but that triple would be the one that I would say, look, I want you to try this, and then just tell me what you think, and it would blow people's minds that usually are just used to drinking Dos Equis or anything else, they would start to have that. And so mm -hmm. it was the triple, and it was the Hefeweizen that became to be the ones that people would have the go-tos for something that might be a lighter... You know, I usually drink Miller Lite and this is what I want. So I would listen to what they would say and we would pair them with something. But what then you would see them do when they drank it is they would realize, oh, I do like this. And I've never had anything other than the big name box brewing companies that are, you know, in 24 case, 24 pack cases and stuff like that. So you would begin to watch people come back after I've given them a couple ones and they would have a whole awakening of what it is that they had like that they didn't think they would like because they would be like, no, I can't handle a quad. I was like, well, this quad in particular, do you like whiskey? Yes. Okay, perfect. So I just want you to try this because they would have a moment and it was crazy to watch how much change there was in somebody who might be drinking Bush every single weekend and now they're really liking the Hefeweizen or they're, you know, so it was... It was, uh, or even the... Um, the steam lager was a big crossover. A big I like one. the California Common. That's probably going to be on our core list. A little bit of body and character to it, mm -hmm. but still kind of like a lighter finish. Precisely. Yeah, so we had some we had some converts, I guess you could say, that they, they probably had never experienced it, but if you can pair somebody with something that they might usually drink, and you can kind of pick and choose based on what they usually like, then they were all about it. It was, it was a cool experience. Well, so one of the things that, and again, I, I have very little planning because I drink too much, think too much about ahead, but I think it'd be fun to come back 12 to 14 months later and interview you guys and see if that's still the case. But disappointingly, most of the guys that I have talked to at some point wind up brewing a blonde or uh, something de mostly devoid of character that can do volume over the bar. And I would love nothing more than for you guys to be the full flavor brewery that changes the rules. But you know, as far as <laughs> what else I've heard, keep yeah. in mind that there's something fairly that we would think is boring 
uh, tends to be the one that's the most profitable for a lot of guys. Didn't so, you try? I a... think the Kolsch is the closest the I've Kolsch. come. Yeah. I like the crispness of it. I enjoy it myself, so I brew it sometimes. Yeah. And people have liked it at yeah. pop-ups. So that's probably one that will... I don't like blondes, but don't quote me. <laughs> don't tell us why. And my wife's blonde, so never mind. <laughs> but this is a podcast, Mike, so I'm fucking <laughs> quoting you, by the way. Uh, by definition. It's on the internet. Yeah. Um, so obviously that leads directly into one of my most favorite questions ever to ask. Um, what is the beer you're going to make with lactose in it, and how are you going to present the lactose beer? Um, the beer that we've done at pop-up so far that I'm going to first play with is the mango milkshake. We call it a milkshake because it has lactose in it, right? So um, I don't know what we're going to name it. I don't, I don't like calling it a milkshake, but... Why? Because that's stupid? I, I don't know. So <laughs> i just seen it so many places, and I'm like, it doesn't taste like a milkshake. So. Well, it's my mango milkshake brings all the yeah. boys to the yard. <laughs> it's a long... Damn right. Yeah. Damn but, right. But at least, you know, a, a mango IPA or something along those lines with lactose in it. So it's got a little bit of sweetness and a body, and it's real... I mean, that's been... That was one of that's the top actually favorites. That's actually the top favorite maybe that and the triple were the ones that everybody would we would tap out of those at the pop-ups no even in the ones in the house those pop-ups the mango milkshake would go probably first it's actually, goes good. Quick. it's actually good with some uh, champagne too if you want a beer most oh yeah and that's the other thing we want to open for brunch eventually so i want to do a coffee porter and mango milkshake you had a coffee with a little porter at the pop up didn't you i did it's yeah, on a tap as far as i know that oh i, I need to get on there <laughs> Yeah. As I'm looking around, I see that there is not space for a canning line. So, what uh, what's your plan for canning? This is my canning line yeah. sitting next to me, actually. <laughs> so we have a, a six hundred and fifty dollar can canner, and it's from from More Beer. They made this cannular system, and I tried it out. It works great once you tune it in, which is a pain in the ass. That took two days. I had to get these little I don't know Allen wrenches and tools to. We spent so we used so many crowler cans that we thought were sealed. They give you diagrams to mm. see how the top is actually compressed, and we would be squeezing them in the, the bubble water. test is bad. Yeah, they have a tool for that too, but it's yeah. Yeah. So so anyway, so he finally I dialed it in, and it's a one button operation, and it's a third of the cost. And I I'm a big fan of it. So we're gonna do that and just sell four packs of 16 ounce cans from a cooler and that's going to be our distribution so we'll have a canning day every so often um we you mean you mean justin yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah as long as we install a splash guard on that thing because it'll i bought the splash guard oh, it's, it's still in the box but i got it man that's living the life right yeah there. smell what smell like beer all day high class all right so you don't have any plans to go to distribution then like or you specifically no plan not to I mean, I've, I've been contacted by a few places already prior to opening. I don't know if that's a thing, but... Ask me off the air. I'm probably going to recommend against them, but... Yes. Yeah. So, they're just like local restaurants and... and oh, I meant distributors. Beer gardens. You should sell all the restaurants no, you can. No distributors. <laughs> no, no distributors. I don't have a lot of interest in even dropping off kegs at local restaurants. What or, about barbershops? keep trying to push them on this for like you know you go to a barbershop and you have a cold case in there and we stock it and stuff like that the coolness factor is there yeah Usually, i don't think barbershops can afford in my beer 
Usually those are packaged places, and unfortunately, once you start trying to like package it and sell it there, you're gonna be like, wait, it's well, how much am I selling well, it for? We went to a, I went to a barbershop before, and they had um, a different brewery here in town that had just would bring and stock their stuff, and um, it seemed like it was a good idea. I just I don't like the distribution part of it as far as big time, but I think if you can have strategic places that you have a partnership with that just gets some awareness for that we're here, I think there's value in that to the extent that it makes sense for you having it there for the cost to have it there. So, yeah, for marketing. So there like, might be yeah. opportunities that, that happens, but as far as distribution on a big scale to the big to the big box markets and grocery stores, then that's not that's not in plan. Yeah, there's a local guy who owns a couple bars in Universal City and shirts next door. And we've we've talked and I would be open to having a tap there just for marketing reasons. I know the, it, it the margins drives, aren't there, but it drives business here because they're mm -hmm. like, oh, well, it's just right over there. Where we get this beer is right there. Yeah. Well, so th in my opinion, this is the problem, and 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 I experienced the same thing. So in the beginning, I would self distribute to a few accounts. I would have distributors for those places far and wide, and it sounds like not a big deal. I got to clean the lines every two weeks, and I got to distribute a keg whenever he wants it. Almost inevitably, he's going to call you on Saturday night. You're going to be home with your family. You're going to be gathering with those that are close to you. And you're going to get a text and be like, hey, keg's empty. Four hours till close. Can I get another one? And you got to make a fucking decision. Wow. Do I tell this guy to eat shit? Because technically it's your fault for not going by on Thursday and shaking the keg and seeing what he had left and selling him another one for a backup. But he's out of keg. So if he goes the rest of the night without that one, goes all day Sunday without one, and then Benny Keith comes in Monday morning and is like, oh, you got an empty tap? I'll give you a half of ice and uh, it's 20 bucks less a keg. You're going to lose that tap. Yeah. Uh, and maybe not. Maybe he's like, oh, cool, it's fine. But over the next 6, 12, 18 months, eventually that becomes an issue. And so if you're going to distribute, it's almost like you, you can't half distribute. You have to go all or nothing. Right. And so as, as much as it sounds easy to send a keg to homeboy, the odds are, like, it's not, it's not as simple as it sounds, right? Right. If you're going to self-distribute too, I, I found out later that it was uh, technically illegal for me to do that in my own car. I had to have a TABC certified vehicle. Uh, I still did it. And TABC, call me if you want. It's fine, but it's too late. Uh, by the time this airs, I probably won't be a brewery owner anymore. But um, yeah, so you have to run into that too. You got to get like a company vehicle. You have to have it licensed as a TABC vehicle, which I think is an extra thousand bucks on your license. It's just all these little myriad of things that they try to throw in there to make that shit that much harder for yeah. you. But I didn't know it was an extra thousand bucks. I have a licensed vehicle. Carrier's permit, I believe is what it is. Okay, yeah. I have that, but it's on the car I sold. <laughs> Six months. Go get it back, dude. <laughs> non transfer. I like a CarMax. I imagine you could transfer it or if you needed to, but yeah, I mean, yeah. either way, you got to have a vehicle. I, there was somebody had told me early on, literally another brewery owner told me early on that if you are the owner and you were doing it and you had an invoice in your car that it was legal, and I have exactly zero evidence to support that, but somebody told me that once, so I was like, yeah, fine, what about that? Yeah. <laughs> we'll go with that. Yeah, no, you heard it here. It's on an official podcast for whatever that's worth, which is not that much. So how did you guys decide on grain suppliers? You know, you've got uh, obviously recipes that you've made and some that are... Um, you know, homebrews that are successful, some that you haven't really made on a big scale. And so uh, at this point, I think you've got a 
maybe five suppliers in the state that are kind of easy to get to or and have you but how do you decide on who you're gonna who's gonna sell you the grains for your beer recommendation on another brewery that that recommended a supplier that's out of dallas i think they're pro brew supply um Mm -hmm. but just the customer service it's not so much on price but what i've learned managing restaurants is customer service is everything because on that the the time when it counts and you need it 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 pays for itself so he's told me stories about when he was at pinch and they drove from another city and got him his stuff and immediately i was sold so yeah we're gonna use them and i don't know we're gonna we're, we have to look into where we're gonna get our hops and other other things uh, i got a, a name for a yeast supplier in california from another brewery and so we're we're even though we're so close to opening we're still a long ways <laughs> with figuring out you know our supply chain and some of the other stuff even yeah and with food we we, we went with us foods because their customer service they I, I went to their test kitchen in kyle and had several hours with their chef trying out products making our food in their kitchen and they're going to come down here and train our employees like it's it's that that aspect of it is really valuable to me yeah so yeah the service side's important so i'm not going to recommend any one supplier the only the only clear clarity i will give you is that uh, brewery directs actually a sponsor of the show and they carry almost the same grains that tbi does and they might be maybe five minutes from your location. So if you need something in five minutes, that might be one to consider. But yeah, I mean, it, it's important to have multiple suppliers in my personal opinion. And so if you're only getting Vireman for everything, and, mm-hmm. and granted, if you're making, there's certain beers that if you don't use Vireman uh, and you try to use some domestic partner, you're gonna taste the difference. And, and I completely agree with that. But if you don't have to use Vireman and you have like, uh, or, or Dingleman's if you're doing something specific in, in that range. But if, if you've got some flexibility, and actually Brewery Direct sells Dingleman's, but it, anyways, um, the point would be having a backup is important. And if COVID taught us anything, it's like some people will run out of shit. And so uh, I'm a huge fan of Brewery Direct and I order a lot from them. I also order a lot from Pro Brew Supply. But when the pandemic happened, the shit from Germany that was coming over with Irex Malt, some people had it, some people didn't, and some people could tell you when they could get it, and some people couldn't. And, you know, the fact that I could have two suppliers made a big difference yep. in making sure that I didn't run out of grains yep. or, or go run out of beer. So. Yeah, in a pinch, that, that definitely matters. So, yeah, so that's what I'm thinking about is, like, diversifying, you know, having a couple places for hops and a couple places for grains. Yeah, that's something that I'm thinking about and I need to sort out shortly. Yeah, and depending on what you do with the hops, like that was one thing that, uh, I, and I, I didn't mention this in the interview, but when I had mentioned that Chris and I had first met each other in an MBAA thing uh, back in, from Noble Ray, Chris from Noble Ray, back in like 2012 or something like that. And uh, at that point, he told me that he had the, the best recipe and his fucking flagship was gonna be a Citra IPA. And I looked at him and I go, no shit? How'd you contract for that? Because at that point you couldn't get it. And he's like, <laughs> what do you mean? What's a contract? I'm like, <laughs> lo and behold, Noble Ray did not launch with a Citra IPA. <laughs> uh, I think they did make one later. But in, in, in Chris's defense, you wouldn't know that. And so yep. the reality is there are certain hop varieties you just literally cannot get outside of like a pound here and there if you don't have a contract. And you wouldn't know you need a contract until you've been in the industry for a minute. And so that's, you know, 
a million things to add to the fucking list of things you have to do. So, yeah, I'm gonna find out I need a contract pretty quick here. Yeah, contracts yeah. are key. Well, I just use a bunch of Magnum and usually cool, but uh, late edition hops. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely gonna have something special and unique. So, got it. All right. Well, let's get into some more of the things that you need to know before you open uh, in a second. But I personally have an empty glass. I assume that you guys look like you believe as well. Yep. So. How about we open something for me that gets released this weekend that you guys haven't had? Done. And, uh, we'll come back here in a second. Remember when the phone company used to print all the phone numbers on the internet and send it to your house in a book large enough to knock somebody out? Well, that's how I feel about fermenting beer in closed tanks without AccuBrew. The industry can be better by being digital. AccuBrew is simple to install, simple to use, and one of those how the hell did we ever get along without it products. For less than a case of beer, you get real-time fermentation feedback on your current gravity, temperature, and clarity. If anything is slowing down or just simply out of the range you set for your recipes, it'll alert you, your brewer, and whoever else gets paid to fix it. Making better beer in 2023 is not an option. Install AccuBrew as soon as you possibly can, check improving beer quality off your list, and get back to figuring out how to be profitable in this industry. This has been a fun afternoon. I really enjoy it. Thank you guys for letting me come hang out in your not-quite-open brewery and uh, pour some very open beers so we can enjoy them. So. Quick question. We talked about a little bit about the tasting room, but how did you make a plan on how many seats you were going to have inside versus, so in the, in the book, if you, and I know you read parts of it, but I made the argument that one of the things that I did very, very wrong was to create a tap room that just had some seats. And then when I went back and ran the math, I was like, well, if everyone sits in that seat and they all spend the average amount of dollars that they typically spend, I'm going to lose about $75,000 a year. And I was like, well, fuck, <laughs> I did that wrong. So have, have you spent any time like talking about, like looking at, you have food, so obviously you have a way different metric than I do, but. Yeah, um, I haven't spent a whole lot of time, you know, with the spreadsheets. It was literally like. I hate spreadsheets, by the yeah. way. Yeah. We went to Colorado, did that crash course, and he had a 50 seat tap room, seven barrel system, profitable, and. That's, I mean, I just, I wanted a minimum of 75 seats is my goal. And yeah. I think inside we have about 90 and then outside we have, in total, it's about 230 between inside and outside. If you count the patio, because you have a big patio. Yeah, it's about 2,000 yeah. square feet. So we should be able to get a good amount of people. And, and my thinking all along, not having hashed it all out and spreadsheeted it, if, if we're doing you know, everything to the taps and we're semi filling the place up on the weekends and getting a decent crowd during the week that we should be okay. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Well, and so to give you an idea, 75 is roughly four times the inside seats that I have. And, and there was a minute pre COVID where I had uh, an additional 18 seats inside, but I took those away for production because everything moved to distribution at retail, obviously, because all tap rooms had to close. And so now I'm at that point where I'm looking at, okay, that we, we, it's time to pivot back. We need to yank that shit out. And we need to tell HEB they can have some beer, but not all the beer. And the rest of it's got to be sold over the bar on the site. So I think that like 75 is a way better number than what we're working with. And, and the biggest problem that I ran into is in 2011, when we conceptualized the brewery, when we started the idea, I'm hoping that you guys have a different body of knowledge that we did. And at that time, you couldn't have a tapper as a production brewery. Uh, you could do tours and you could, you know, 15 bucks a glass, two fills. And I walk around and talk about how the we, how we make grains into beer, just like every other brewery did. 
but you guys have a different experience. And so now I think you're opening with a situation that you're better equipped than I was. So what we opened with then, I couldn't just add an extra 50 seats. And that was a big problem that I ran into. So obviously you guys are opening with, in my opinion, at least enough seating to uh, get you to first base. You kind of see from there. Then you can tweak it, right? You get 75 seats. You can, you can figure out, okay, do I need a food special? Do I need a drink special? Do I need a a Tuesday night, um, prime rib night or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Um, you've got enough seats, I think, to generate the revenue that you need to cover your overhead. But some of us smaller guys just didn't and and don't still to this day. Yeah. And, And honestly, when I read your book, it was very confirming of our business plan, not wanting to distribute and having a good size tap room, including food, all those things that were important to us just because of what we're passionate about. It was, it was awesome to read that and kind of feel confirmed and like, okay, we're, we're, we're on the somewhat of a right track here. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, food is my passion. Like that was my passion from the get go. Food and Belgian beer, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, Belgian beer for sure. Anxiety around, are we going to execute? It's mostly around beer because it's newer to me. I've been all grain brewing for only like a little over two years, two and a half years. I I think I can make a good beer and on this level and people are going to like it. The food is something I'm more confident in and, and I'm very excited about getting people Everything we do, we want to give people something that they've never had before, but they enjoy. I think that the food for sure is going to ex- execute on that level. And the beer is going to be, I, I like brewing true to style. So, you know, with, with the Belgian styles that we like and all that, like we, we want to brew true to style and just give some, give, give customers something that they really enjoy. I, I think it's mostly about the environment personally. So if they, if they like the environment, the feel, and w- what they're coming and spending their money at, like they're, they're going to come back, come back for the experience more than just that was the best beer. Because there's so many good beers at HEB and Total Wine and Specs. Like you can get anything you want and perfectly to style. But there's a reason why people like going to breweries. And so we really focused on the experience. And with the food side, they're going to get something they never had before that they're going to love, and very confident with that. And so, well, uh, I'm excited about. And the menu was combed over, right? So, Mike's specialties and what we've gathered from people going to pop ups and to the house and figuring out what they like and what they don't like. There was a lot of effort that went into that to complement the beer, and so. You know, I try to think sometimes which one is the punctuation mark. Is it the beer on the food or is it the food on the beer? And I think that there is not necessarily one that's going to accentuate the other. It's just they're going to meld well together to provide an experience that people just want to come back to. You might have foodies that come here because of the food and then they like the beer also. But then you might have people that just love the beer and yeah, the food's great too. So it wasn't one that's going to be one weaker than the other to that we have to lean on. There's a strong menu behind the opening. Whenever he first pitched me the menu, I was thinking, damn, that's a that's a lot of that's a that's a lofty goal. But like to his point is food is what he can just just throw out there in a way that people are gonna respond to, I think. I thanks for saying that. I, I don't feel confident about the beer, honestly. <laughs> I, I brewed commercially one time, one brew day. So it's gonna be fun when we first commission our system. But the food, I 
don't lose any sleep over and we've had great i mean i i've had a lot of experience with that side and so i feel confident that we're going to get something literally everything on our menu is something that they've never had before but i'm confident that they'll love and come back for and with the beer i just want to fuck it up that's it <laughs> <laughs> have some fun yeah so you guys mentioned the food and so i as a brewery only person who appreciates food but doesn't want to own a restaurant I don't know the correct question to ask, but let me kind of skirt around it and maybe you can figure out what I'm trying to say here. But one of the reasons that I don't have food in my place, obviously, because I don't have a lot of space, but even secondarily, I understand, I, I love to cook. I do 100% of cooking for my family. Unfortunately, it's all gluten-free now because my wife's gluten-free. So I've gotten very creative on how to make things taste good without um, like one of my favorite ingredients in it. But my understanding with commercial kitchens is that you can't just make badass food. And what I mean by that is if, if this thing really calls for basil, but basil um, goes bad in three days and your, your delivery driver only delivers once a week, you really can't have a basil product on your menu unless you do the volume on it. And that's one example. And you also can't make money if, if it's only one item has goat cheese. You've got almost got to scale that across multiple things. Again, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I only know what I've heard. But so from the perspective of I would argue that you should have a kitchen, and yet I don't know how to tell someone how to do it right. What advice can you give someone that wants to do a kitchen or needs to do a kitchen and will do a kitchen in their brewery? That's actually a really good point, and don't discount yourself because that's something that a lot of people run into is putting all the things that they know are going to be just showstoppers out there, but not knowing what's going to sell, and then they have a bunch of food going bad and they're losing money. The way we look at food is, you know, we want to make a small margin of profit on it, but it's really here to bring people in and buy beer because that's where our margins are. And so everything on the menu, I've had to say no to myself a lot of times with what I put on the menu because, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it and, and I think people are going to love it if it doesn't sell. And that's the only item that requires avocados, let's say. Now I have a, a case of avocados going bad every week. Do we just pull it off the menu and disappoint the people who are coming for that item? Everything that's in there, like if we were doing prime rib, right? We'll have prime rib on the menu, but then we have shaved prime rib sandwiches and a shaved prime rib topped burger. So everything that's left over on that so is going on other items. Everything on that menu has other uses on the menu. And so because of that, I've had to say no to a lot of things that I've wanted to do. And maybe eventually we'll have the volume where we can play around with other things. But initially, everything has a, another use and nothing's going to get wasted, hopefully. And that, yeah, that's definitely a thinking behind that. And you're spot on. Yeah, it's one of the things that always terrified me because I don't want to have... And I think pizza is a good way around that. If you're going to do kind of weird and esoteric and goofy shit... If you've got one sort of gluten-y, bready base, you can just layer shit on it. That's better, but even still, if your delivery guy only comes whatever and you're, you're trying to get fresh tomatoes all the time, once you refrigerate them, it changes the character. Uh, and anyways, yep. um, I know enough about food to know that I don't know enough about food. <laughs> so I cook at home, and my favorite thing to do is go by the grocery store on the way home and figure out what's fresh and cool for that day and get inspired to make something, which means I would be a terrible um, kitchen operator, you know. <laughs> I hear you. One thing that's helped me is running my menu by people who are in the industry because I I have confidence in it, but I want other eyes on it so I can get feedback and pivot. 
And so like the, the head of food and beverage at Breckenridge Distillery is the best friends of my neighbor. And he was visiting for a week. So I brought my menu over and he gave me over some of his awesome whiskey. Great feedback on my menu. Really emphasize that I feature the beer in the menu because that's going to be a huge selling point being that we are a brewery. Mm-hmm. So not just having caramelized onions, but having porter caramelized onions. Yeah, people love that on the menu. It just yep. ties the whole thing together. Yep. Yeah, in our whiskey caramel sauce. Add a beer in there. Put a quad in there or whatever works so that people see, oh, there's beer in here. And that actually adds value and is cheap to us. Well, that's a conversation I love to have. And we're going to have a conversation now that I don't love to have, but I have to have it anyways. Online beer reviews. I hate the internet. I don't... I mean, I do personally hate Mark Zuckerberg. I've never met him, but I <laughs> fucking don't like that guy. How, what, you guys have a plan, and uh, admittedly, this may fall under your jurisdiction, Justin, but so you can reply to Google reviews. You can reply to untapped reviews. You don't have to, and there's not like maybe an industry standard for how to do it, but I think you got to have a plan and you got to have an answer when some guy goes on the line and says, this Belgian quad tastes like a Belgian double. What the fuck? What, you know, what are you going to do? Of course, we think that no one's going to have a bad review on our brewery. I truly wish that for you. We haven't I... served anything yet. <laughs> um, so so we're going to be the one that's perfect, right? Right now, you've already, 100%. You've already got 35 or so view, reviews on Untapped, and you're not even open yet. So good luck. So this, this may be <laughs> part of my plan. I don't even know we're on. My wife told me we're on Untapped. She didn't go in. She didn't look at it. That's, I mean, I just stay away from social media in general. Well, are they good or people not? Who, I, I want to know. <laughs> I think people who, who comment on social media, um, no offense, are people who have time to comment on social media. People who are, love our brand and the people we want around are going to come back. So I, I'm not concerned with that. I don't envision myself going on there and looking at what people say. If, if anything, my wife handles it for me. So copy and paste our polite answer and be done with it. <laughs> Yeah. But we want people who want us. I think in my viewpoint, we're selling an experience primarily before we're selling beer and food. And so I think if you're looking at those kind of comments and it's somebody that might have had a bad experience, then I'm all about identifying that, fixing it, and reaching out to the person to, to, to right that wrong. Sure. Hostess um, didn't reply to me quickly enough. Right. I didn't get my drink order or whatever. Yeah. I think if there's a tone that's just kind of poking the bear in a sense, you're going to have that all over the place. But what I've seen even in the pop-ups, and it's the only thing that I have to, to base this on, is that people might not like the beer necessarily because we've had some of those people that don't prefer the beer that we're handing out. They still end up hanging around and just being with the people. So I think to be able to parse and divide whether it's experience or, yeah, I might have had an off beer and now we're just going to like internet champion and I'm just going to go ahead and just send these negative reviews. I think I would spend more of my energy on the person that had a bad experience holistically instead of somebody that might not have preferred the beer. But I'm confident in the, in the sense that even if they had a bad beer, that if we're doing things right with culture and customer service and everything else for what Gather stands for, then there's a lot more flexibility to have that conversation and make that right. Because then it's not necessarily about the bad beer. It's all about the experience is what, what is the way that I would envision how that goes. I think you're trying to say we don't give a shit about those people. Yeah, and I'm yeah. Very, that's my political spin way of saying exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. 
Well, so, and I would love for that to be true. And so I'm not trying to argue that, but I do want you to think about as the artist, you're the guy making the beer, you're sweating over it, you're struggling to yep. make the best version that you can. And so as the artist, at the end of the day, if you, if you were just making art that you appreciated, you wouldn't sell it to people. You want someone else to like it as well, right? So at some point, you're going to make a seven-barrel batch of beer. You're going to put it on tap. You're going to carbonate it correctly. You're going to taste it before you sell it. You're going to think it's perfect. And then some fucking ass monkey is going to be like, well, this is no triple carmelite. We have the perfect story for this. Go for it, please. One of the pop-ups, we had a visitor from another brewery that was, I think, one of the brewmasters for the brewery. He was tasting the IPA, if I'm correct, yeah. um, and came up and wanted to speak to Mike because as he was tasting it, it tasted off, or what was the terminology used? Okay, for starters, he dipped his beer, his beard in the beer and then like held it up to his face to breathe it in. So he's very like, you know, That's he's the guy who waxes his mustache, right? Yep. So then he comes up and he says this to me and I said, well, you know, I'm just, I'm just the, the customer service guy. So he spoke to Mike and it turns out, I mean, and he was kind of worked up about it in a way that, okay, well, what we realized is that a lot of the times we had so much volume coming through for the tasting, some of the beers we had to pour and they'd be sitting there for maybe, I don't know, a minute for the next person to come. Mm -hmm. um, and so Mike realized that some of the, the, they were in the sunlight. So the sunlight was affecting the way that the hops were tasting. So it was beginning to taste off. So we had that feedback from this, this gentleman and he was very disturbed. And so then we kind of explained it to him and then began to just let people know, hey, if you're gonna have this beer, try to stay out of the light. You know, because it's doing something where it might taste off. But we know we're going to get those people that are dipping their beard in the beer, right, to, to sniff it and smell it. And I think they have another kind of intent for the whole process. So if you can combat that with the experience, and I'm not saying it's always going to work. We're going to have those negative reviews. We're going to have these things. But I, all we can really do is do the best brewing do the best customer service experience that we can give. And then the rest I think is going to have to take care of itself because there's not really much you can do because it, yeah. it was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, is the beer off? No, I think it's just that it's been sitting out a little bit in the sunlight. The hops in the sun skunk. Yeah. yeah that's what you're wow. talking about. And if that guy is actually a brewmaster at another facility, he should fucking know better. He wasn't, he was just a home brewer. Mm. Oh, I thought he was, was trying to prove himself. I thought so too. But so that's, so that's what you're going to get. And so, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. I apologize. It's kind of one of those hills that I'm going to die on. And I've got, I think three or four, but this is one of the ones I'm going to die on at some point. And, and actually he didn't, uh, cause I did look at all your untapped check-ins and he did not check in, but at some point you're going to get that motherfucker or his buddy mm -hmm. who does check in and they're going to rate your beer one, one and a half, two, whatever. Right. And it's going to bring your average down. So you're typically four. Most beers are between 3.7 and 3.9, unless Weldworks brews it, and then it's 9.8. But most beers are in that range, and he's going to bring that score down. So your average score will be lower because he's an idiot, and he didn't understand it. And because of that, he went online and rated it negatively. Hopefully, you only get one or two of those, but once you get like 9, 10, maybe they account for 15% of your um, check-ins, it's going to negatively affect your overall score. And this is... Again, one of those fun things for me because you guys aren't open yet. How do you feel about that now before you open, knowing that it might happen? And, and more importantly, 
how do you plan to either deal with it or ignore it? I think I feel anxious about it because I don't want people to go online. You know, what I do personally is I'll, I'll go on Google Maps and just type in brewery mm-hmm. and find out what pops up. Oh, this one is 4.8 stars. This is like 3.6. We're going to go to the 4.8. And so because of that asshole, now <laughs> they aren't coming to our brewery. And I think they would have had a great experience at our brewery. Thankfully, you don't have any competition in the immediate area. So you should be okay. <laughs> You're like, oh, this is the only three point. Right. So. Fuck yeah. it. We're going to go. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I, this one hasn't come out yet, but there's an episode I did with Southern Star. And he has a one star review on his site where the oh. guy says, uh, I've never been there. One star. Wow. <laughs> on Google. Well, we would so. get, we'd get a banner up there <laughs> yeah. that says the best one star beer you've ever had in your life. Yeah, play it up, right? Have some fun yeah. with it. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know what you would do with that necessarily until, I mean, if, I, I feel like if you feel a trend and there's the same person, how much energy do you want to expend towards that one person? I don't know, but I do understand the question in, in that it might affect people that are just looking. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I can do is probably try to combat that with numbers of positivity. And so maybe it is that there's something that's, you know, if, if you like the beer, I mean, if it gets that bad, then you want, hey, people, share your experience. If you've had a good time, then, then this is the time to, to share it. Um, well, it gets that bad. Maybe you should fire Mike. Yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe there is a problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely not the one to respond. I'm, you know, I just call him a dipshit and type unsubscribe or something. Mike so. forwards it to me and says, can you handle this? Yeah. And then I'm the fixer. Now, I would, I would recommend that, um, and again, most of the things I wrote in the book are a list of things not to do. And I don't think I'm quite qualified to tell you what you should do. That being said... You should not do what I did. And so if you just go look at any of my Instagram or Facebook posts and the negative reviews that I got, um, and you could copy and paste those and just change all the words to positive, that would probably be great I did exactly <laughs> what not to do. But I did it because I had to because I was running the show completely. And I am the kind of person that I just – I can't abide somebody being an asshole to me without – it's fine. To me, it's fine if you don't like the beer. I, I get that. And if you don't appreciate what we did, I get that. But if you don't understand it and you rate it negatively, you shouldn't have drank it or you should have asked somebody. I, I just That bugs me. And then also, if you didn't like me personally and you rated either the brewery or the beer negatively, that stuff just it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, I just I wouldn't go on Walmart's uh, website right now and be like, oh, you're, do you see Sam Walt? Walton in 1976, that guy's a fucking dick. Fuck Walmart. I, I just wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. And I might do that. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So you should get that karma instead of me because I wouldn't, but I'm getting that karma. But anyways, that's not the point. Yeah. So online beer reviews are a real thing. You guys got to figure that out. I don't have the best answer for it, but I do recommend you think about it and uh, at least have a policy in place for how you want to work on it. I'll call you up when we get our first one yeah, star. Yeah, you're going to be our PR guy. Once again, I'm the uh, ghost of Christmas future. What not to do? Do not do what I did. But So here's the next one, last main section I want to talk about, and then I just want to get a feel for like, you know, what you guys want to talk about going out. But cash flow was one of those things that, for me, was just an absolute fucking nightmare. And a big part of that was because of the industry I came from before, Cash flow was significantly different than what we have to worry about here with the whole idea of um, buying things today to hopefully turn that into revenue in the future, but it doesn't always work. And you guys have the advantage of not having a distributor, which completely wrecks that model, in my opinion. But um, 
What, so have you, do you have a plan in place? And that could be something as simple as a line of credit with your grain supplier, but a plan in place for how to, how to buy a thousand dollars worth of grains today to hopefully sell that batch of beer over the next eight weeks for um, $5,000 or whatever it is. Yeah. So going back to, you know, how I've been able to start this um, with my dad backing me, my plan is, you know, I'm trying to start with $10,000 in the bank when we open so we can cover salaries and ingredients and all that. Wait, you're going to get a salary? <laughs> <laughs> um, Fuck you, Mike. No, actually, that's, that doesn't include me. Um, we're going to have a kitchen manager. Um, as much as I love food, I have spent my, paid my dues in the kitchen. And so I'm going to, you know, consult with him and work together. But Boots on the Ground is going to be a salaried kitchen manager that we hire and a kitchen staff. That's going to be something that is going to help us not worry as much, I guess, about the food execution and to kind of take the headache off the board. And it's not something that we're trying to make a huge profit on at the same time. Just bring people in because they love our food and they'll buy our beer. So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to actually subsidize my own salary so I don't have to take one from the brewery um, and not worry about that for at least three to six months. Um, and so I have side jobs and, and other things that right now have been sustaining me through trying to open and everything. And, and so, you know, we'll see how long it takes to get still stripping. Uh, I, I, you know, the reviews have been really bad on that one. So I've, I've had to pivot. If there was an untapped for, um, the stripping, it would definitely be a one star. Untapped for half naked dicks. Yeah. Yeah. Only half the But one of the things that we had talked about in the very beginning is, I mean, you have to decide your, your hours of opening, right? So how many days a week are you mm-hmm. open? Are they going to be for lunch and for dinner? Are they, is that going to be that way for how long? So there's a whole yeah. process to understand how much one of the busy times, what, you know, when we're outside this base and we're the only brewery around here, are we going to need actually more people for the influx of lunch crowd? Are we going to need less people? So yep. we've even talked about how are the tips being split for people that are coming in for the beginning of the shift and the end of the shift. And so there's been a lot of thought process behind just trying to assess without even knowing because you don't really have this sort of facility here in this area is how does that even look? So it's probably going to be a skeleton crew in the beginning and then we might have to ramp up. And so there's a flexibility that's associated with even understanding we don't even have metrics for busyness, right? I mean, you might have this yep. there's a pizza joint over there that's probably doing sales all during the day. But for a, a brewery that's a, a brew house and kind of a like, there's no really, there's no, there's no blueprints for that. So we have had to think thoughtfully how do you not have too many people on staff? How are you going to cut them? How are you going to bring in more people? So it's like a very flexible dance that you have to try to work. Yeah, we're going to have to play by ear. And another thing that plays into that is like, when is it Air Force Base, right? When do people get off work? When's the line at the the gate leaving? And because I know personally, being in the military, I would leave base and at stop at a brewery at my home. At right? 5 o'clock every day, no matter what. Yeah, no, we're talking about <laughs> 3 and 4 o'clock um, if you work out. Now my, so My mother-in-law <laughs> is... Uh, she George back on Randolph, and she was a, she's a lieutenant colonel, retired, and uh, I don't think she's ever left before seven o'clock because it's not her thing. So yeah, well, she must be higher ranking. She's um, not a clock watcher. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 
Yeah. Very committed. But yeah. And then, and then with that, what provides more flexibility is our model. So, you know, going back to gather and not wanting to have a high pressure service model where people feel like they need to leave. We have someone coming to the table asking, you know, do you need more water filling up the glass quarter into the glass? We have a counter service model. So people go up to the counter, they order their beer, they order their food, and then they get a text when their food's ready to go to the order, pick up window, pick up their own food. So that's something that kind of formulated when we were visiting our favorite beer garden across the street in Jersey. And that's exactly what they did. And we loved it because we felt like no pressure to leave and we ended up spending more money and staying longer. Yeah. Um, and, and just in that it also helps having the space like outside, inside, um, having the taproom space where, you know, people are just hanging out for a long period of time. It's not going to hurt us necessarily. Um, cause those seats aren't accounted for in our daily, like we have to keep the lights on. Um, so <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that'll, I think that's going to bring more flexibility to be able to have more people behind the bar. And actually with our POS system, we're going to have like QR codes at the tables where they can order and start their own tab mm-hmm. and we can run food to them, but we don't want to have servers. Not that I don't like service, but it's a, it's a bitch to deal with sometimes. And so, um, they can just order at the table and then we'll bring the food, beer to them, or they can come to the order counter. We have an outside and inside order counter where they can order from. And I think that'll allow us to have better customer service where we're, where our strength is, which is behind the bar and not be so like spread out initially. And my fear is actually not being able to contain the interest. So Rachel, Mike's wife has been somehow garnered this social media energy that she's put out and the response that we're getting for people that are interested, even on base and around town and the newspaper articles on Mike and that kind of stuff. I'm actually more concerned with how are we going to handle what's been sitting here and people have known based on the the banner and everything else. There's a buzz about it that's going to, there's going to be an influx that I'm really interested to see is how we can actually accommodate that for that initial opening. So there's, there's, there's something going on about that. Well, I hope it'll be a line out the door and then I'll create a little bit more (laughs) excitement and demand, right? Yeah. That's our business plan. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> well, let me, uh, I got a little surprise for you guys. Let me pour you guys a beer here. And then uh, I got a couple of like kind of parting questions to ask you about how that opening is going to look. And then I'll let you guys get out of here. All right. Sounds good. Beer sounds good. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcyclehelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, welcome back. I appreciate you guys hanging out with us. We have just opened an Oktoberfest from Southern Star Brewing Company, which is 
Dave, if you're listening to this, it's drinking real fucking nice, dude. It doesn't suck. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's great. I, for me, one of the things that people do with Oktoberfest, either they make them overly roasty because they can't do the balance, or they make them overly like that Hellas Light that they're selling now in, in Germany, which I just don't fucking like. And this is that coppery Vienna malt, like all the character. Uh, it's not bitter, it's not sweet, but it's in the middle of both. It's, oh, it's fun, beer, fun beer to drink. Yeah, and if it matters... I don't know a lot about beer necessarily, but I don't usually like Oktoberfest. Here comes your review. Yeah. I do like this one, so there's five stars on whatever site that matters for. Whichever site you're Cheers. on, I guess. Here, here. Cheers to you. Considering that you guys are right in the shit of it, right, uh, you know, six-ish weeks from opening, <laughs> talk to me a little bit about the, the construction part. Like what, you know, obviously the highs and lows, which... Uh, and, to, to clarify it, before I built this brewery, I built eight fitness centers, and I hate the construction part. I hate it with a passion. Yeah. And I have met people that are friends of mine who are like, oh, that's my favorite thing. I love like putting all the pieces together and making it happen. And then like, when the crisis happens, mm-hmm. I fix it. And I got, you can fucking have it. In fact, I'll pay you to do mine yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think the, the biggest challenge is having to do things well that I hate doing, like you said. And so being here literally every day, looking at the plans, looking at what they're doing. Oh, you're doing this wrong. That's where my glycol system goes. That's why it's in the middle of the fucking ceiling instead of (laughs) on the wall where my glycol is supposed to run. Like all those things, if I don't catch them, it's going to be delays down the road. In fact, they're supposed to finish tomorrow per the contract. Really? Looking around, I don't think anyone here thinks that they're going to finish tomorrow. Got a ways to go. Yeah, we've got uh, flooring coming on Monday, so... It's, it's been a, a big stretcher for me. Like you, I don't like it at all. And it's, it's just like one of those necessary evils to opening a business. What was a surprise is we worked on the plans for this place for uh, about 10 months. Really? Mm-hmm. We got initial bids in about six months into the plans, about three times what we expected. And so we had to reel them back. And what's weird is the second round of bids doesn't come in much less but you have a lot less in your plans. So yeah. <laughs> if I had to go back, I would just stick with the original plans. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been a huge learning, learning curve, something I, I don't want to do again, or just copy this in the exact plan so I don't have to do it again if I had to. I didn't know that every outlet in the entire building would have to be planned before breaking ground. Well, and I, mean, I don't know things like, what well, does a customer need to charge a, a laptop there? Are they going to bring laptops? I don't know. And what's, they, what's the voltage of this pump? I haven't bought it yet. So I have to like go online and like figure out what I'm going to buy. It's going to be an auction. And I want to save money. We'll have to get it now because it has to be planned right now. Yeah. So I've talked to many brewery owners. And have you been in an MBAA meeting yet? So the no. Master Brewers Association of the Americas has like different regions. And so they have one in Texas. And I remember... Um, Shout out to uh, ABGB up in Austin. The owner slash brewer that was up there, he did a presentation about how he picked his mash tub. He literally changed the angle. And so, and it, and he, I'll, one day I'll have him on the show and he'll explain the difference, but I don't know what it was, right? So normally your mash tub's got like, it comes to the center typically to your runoff point, or I think his comes to the side actually. And so it, the manufacturer had built it, let's say at an 11% angle. And he mm-hmm. goes, no, 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 it's gotta be 14. How the fuck would you, he knew, he, he had, he was an expert in the industry. He had brewed all over the place, which is one of the reasons that ABGB makes some of the best lagers you will ever have anywhere is that 
he had the advantage, unlike most of us, of knowing exactly what the fuck he needed to make the best beer in the world. And to his credit, it, he has proven that he does, right? So that's awesome. And I think the rest of us are just kind of like, well, I'm pretty sure that I want this there. But even me, so I paid a guy to do my floors and he sloped them. But the guy was um, clearly like a IQ of 105. Mm. And so he completely fucked it up. And I think it took me three years to finally tear all of it off accidentally as I was moving kegs around and different things. But the floor is no longer sloped <laughs> and I squeegee everything. And I can tell you wow. that is not worth the effort. It is a humongous pain in the ass. And I knew at the time to slope the floors, but I didn't know like why tile would be better. And like, oh, it, anyways, long story short, if I were, and I'm not going to ever build a brewery again, I would be way smarter. Anyways, you learn, right? Yeah, and I think one of the, to Mike's testament is his father is financing all this stuff. But when I come in to help, Mike's learning and figuring out things that he's been trying to figure out all day and treating it like it's something that we really need to try to do as much as we can on our own just to be smart with that line of credit or anything mm -hmm. else. And so there's been times we were just in here the other day running running Cat Cat Six to try to get the POS wired, or we had to put up the panels for the brew house so that we can hose it down and all that stuff. And so planning the auger system and we, all the penetrations and how to seal them. What did we <laughs> hang in there? The the, the warmer the uh, the cheese warmer. Yeah. I mean we're in there drilling in the new stainless steel for the entire kitchen so we can hang one of these warmers and. And cheese warmer. We have a cheese melter, not cheese a cheese melter. warmer. Yeah, That's sorry, kind of I'm not, psycho. I'm not a chef. So a cheese melter, and we're sitting there trying to figure out how we're at Home Depot, multiple trips, just trying to figure out which brackets we need so we can hang this thing so it's not going to fall and kill someone. And all the while, the people that are here trying to run the gas lines are waiting for us to finish. <laughs> and we're in here sweating, and we're just we're measuring. We don't know what we're doing. We, we don't even know the measurements on the measure tape. We're like, oh, two ticks below 15 feet. I we don't still know. don't know. Yeah, so it's been like this even though it's all planned out there are things you have to insert yourself to just figure it out because the schedule is dependent upon this thing being there so that the rest of the stuff can happen even though everything else should be taken care of it's this weird experience of just a master of nothing i mean a jack of all trades just yeah. trying to figure it out i mean we were out there for two hours cleaning a pizza what's the thing yeah yeah the cheese melter Salamander. Yeah, the thing that we hung, we had to clean the grease oh off of that for hours. I wanted an auction. auction. Oh, yeah. From a restaurant that closed down. And Spaghetti warehouse. We have, we have gloves, we have degreaser, we have the hose, and everybody's looking at us like we're just crazy. But, I mean, it's got to get done. Well, so, and obviously, there everyone's got their own problem, right? And so, when we opened, and many people in our same timeline did, the lead time for equipment was sometimes a year. Mm. And so, at least... If, if you want to like rest on anything, at least your equipment is here sitting and you've still got to clean it or whatever and, and pipe it in with the glycol or whatever. But at the end of the day, we I think we finished our construction on the new part um, February and we did not open until May because we were waiting on equipment just sitting mm -hmm. there. Uh, thankfully, I don't think we were, and, and my wife could clarify, I don't think we were paying rent. <laughs> I hope not. we may have been. I don't fucking know at this point. Check the spreadsheet. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we were no mm -hmm. revenue. We couldn't sell beer. We couldn't make beer. We couldn't do anything. And we were just sitting there wasting the time. And so at least you guys have the equipment. That is an advantage. But still, construction's bullshit. I've had the equipment in, uh, for a year because during COVID, we were able to 
through auctions and just look at online, Kroger, or find stuff that was new Mike's from breweries that never auction. opened. He was always like, hey, can you go with me to Dallas for this auction? i got to pick up this. We get, oh, we, Colorado. We flew to Colorado to do an auction and rented two Ford trucks, F-150s, to just drive all the way back oh, yeah. to San Antonio with gear. That- from Golden, they, they upgraded their system, so they had this five-ton chiller from Chillstar, and I was like, yeah. yeah, that's a good price. I'm not paying, it's less than double of, you know, less than half of what it costs. Did that was going to pay, so. Did you know you had to have a CDL and like an actual permit to do that? No. I didn't either. Don't so tell anyone. I interviewed um, <laughs> one of the guys that was uh, Beer Dudes Canning, and he was part of Audacity Brewers up in uh, the Denton area. And they had done that. They had driven or flown to, I think they drove to Colorado and it turned out they got pulled over like three times. Wait, you had to have a CDL to do what? Bring back? Because you can't have like, there's a certain weight you can't exceed. And if you do, you've got to have a state permit. We were maxed. And so they got into into Kansas and they were like, what the fuck are you guys doing? What do you mean? Well, you got to have a permit. He's like, well, how much is that? He handed them, no, 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 no. You got to go get like a health inspection. (laughs) And he's like, well, it's fucking three in the morning. He's like, right. So in the morning, (laughs) go get, oh, he's like, ruin the whole thing. Anyways. Uh, I would have done exactly what you did. We like, didn't do that. Yeah. Again, I mean, we exceeded the, 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 pin, the bed weight, the max bed weight in that F-150 yeah, rental. Actually, that thing's 1,100 pounds. We showed up with one F-150. We had to drive to the Enterprise to get another F-150. <laughs> and then yep. we just caravan back home. Literally, we left the auction and we're like, we need two trucks. This is, I got too many fire extinguishers. There's oh, too much shit on yeah. here. Yeah. So we got two and then we just caravan home. It was a shit, it was a fecal feature for sure. <laughs> you make it work, right? Yeah. So you guys are about to open and you're excited about it and you should be. What, what is the, like, it, and I'm sure there's more than one, but if you could pick one thing that you want to make sure that the guy cons- or girl considering opening a brewery needs to know like now, and we've been talking for what, an hour and a half, mm-hmm. two hours, distill it down to the thing that you're an idiot if you don't. Blank. This is going to be less advice-wise and less just this is what's helped me along the way. I'm more this is what's helped me along the way. Keep visiting other breweries that are open because you see customers enjoying beer at other places and you can get so wrapped up in dealing with the dickhead GC who doesn't understand what you're trying to do because they don't build breweries or... You know, is just worried about the scope of work and is, is this drain part of it. And, and going to other places keeps you inspired and moving forward because it's so easy to get wrapped up in the build-out process. And, you know, it can take a year plus and that, that's a long time. And, and personally, like, there's been times where I'm like, do I even want to do this? Because <laughs> it just gets, it, it can be a lot of doing shit that you never signed up you did sign up to do, but you don't want to do. And so just going to other breweries like yours or other places I've been to and seeing customers enjoying beer and seeing what's happening that I want to happen at my brewery and what I want to experience going on other places helps me a lot to stay the track, keep focused, and keep keep going. Yeah, I would echo that since it's been such a long process and we've visited so many places is to keep the vision in front of you for why you're doing what you're doing. Every time that I come into this place after we've done something or they've been working on something, you have to keep appreciating the slow build towards what your vision is. And as that keeps transpiring, it's the only thing that's going to keep you to keep showing up and ripping out walls because, you know, there's lizard, dead lizards and rats falling out of the ceiling. 
I guess the only thing that's going to keep fueling you is if you can keep the vision in front of you. And then I think also remember the places you've been that you didn't like, because sometimes the worst example is the best teacher. So seeing this is not how I want to run the brewery, I do not want my people to feel like this. And if you can keep that thing in front of you at all times and keep the vision plain, then you can keep finding that strength to show up and be like, all right, well, let's, let's shave these floors and take up this dance floor that is here. And, and um, it, it takes a lot of uh, internal fortitude to be able to see what can be versus what currently is right now. And I think that's probably the biggest advice because you're going to want to be like, what the hell, so many times, especially when things are slipping, timelines are slipping. It's just, it's, 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 it's grating for sure. And I think one other thing that we did that we didn't realize was for us too, is we, we thought it was just a marketing expense, giving away beer in our parking lot. We got a permit from the city to hand out homebrew, and I was actually able to sell food. We got the health oh, inspector really? to come, and she inspected our little workstation and everything. We sold some of the menu items that are going to be on our menu. The turnout from those, I mean, sometimes we get over 300 people just fill the parking lot. And that, looking back, I can't imagine, like, what the wind of our, in our sales would have been at this point, if not for doing that stuff. Because that, that showed us, like, the local community, how they're supporting us, they're excited about us. And now we're like, oh, we know that they're thinking about us and looking online, see if we're open and it, it increased our social media following, all that stuff. So yeah, that was a, a way, huge part of... Find a way to build the buzz, whatever it is. Yeah. It happened to be merch and pop-ups for us and social media. So whatever you can do to build the buzz. People are, people are more forgiving than you think. When we first started doing pop-ups, we're like, oh, June, we're going to be open. <laughs> Next pop-up, we're like, yeah, it's probably going to be July, August. But they're so forgiving because they've had an experience and then they're they're rooting for you almost. They're rooting yeah. for us. Yeah. And they're gonna want to be the first people that are banging on the door to come when we Yeah, they got free beer. Yeah. I think the chalkboard on one of your untapped check-ins early on was uh, like the, the list or everything that said opening spring twenty twenty one. That sounds which, about right. Which yeah. to clarify, we're having this interview late uh, August of twenty twenty one. Yep. And it is what it is. That's yeah, how it works. And we're hoping for October. Yeah. So. yeah. So normally, um, and just to clarify, I would I would normally recommend against doing pop ups, and specifically because of the fact that you can't. Well, you're using you're not using your equipment, right? You're you're making homebrew mm -hmm. beer and bringing homebrew beer out, and and obviously those there's some inherent limitations to that, and you can't make the same beer you were yeah. gonna make. Um, and so to to be honest, I went on Untapped for the sole purpose of trying to find. Um, justification for that and even people that I know I have friends that had checked into your um, pop-ups they across the board were very forgiving and or, or very positive so I wouldn't say forgiving they, they liked what they had they <laughs> it. Both. Um, so for better or for worse it worked for you guys and so um, again I don't know if I would necessarily change my policy but uh, it clearly has worked to your advantage and so if you can do if somebody else can do what Gather Brewing did, then that's a, a win, and that should be uh, rewarded. But be very, very cautious of the fact that you're making homebrew on a system that doesn't have the same, you know, you can't control the temperatures, you can't lager as long. There's a lot of limitations for what you're doing at home versus what you do at the brewery, which is why commercial beers are, you know, sold mm -hmm. and homebrews are not. But uh, it obviously worked for you guys, so that, that's great. And I would say a lot of that, I would say the success 
on that point is that the help and support we had from family and friends to come out and create the experience for those people, I think would have has gone a long way to to make what you're saying as far as the variables of unknowns for bringing out homebrew. Yeah. I think that really smoothed the the plane out for them having a good experience was how they were treated when they were here. So if, if somebody is listening and they do decide that they want to go that route, I would say really concentrate on what the person's experience is in a parking lot when it's a hundred degrees out and people are sweating, but you're still treating people like you're in the AC. Yeah. In retrospect, I did have some IPAs that had a slight card cardboard undertone to them that because was the oxygen control was tough in the whole brewery. Um, I, I did, you know, build out my own temperature controls and stuff. So, but, but some of them were, uh, yeah, there's, there's definite parts and components to, to commercial breweries that are hard to replicate sure. on a homebrew scale. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, from, from what you have learned from talking to people, talking to me, reading my book, is there anything that you can think of that you've come across that I missed in the book that you would give as advice to somebody else? You can say no, that the book is the best thing. No, ever. I, I was going to that, that, that realm there. I was going to say, this is the best book. Yeah. Um, I, can, I can also cut all of that completely out. No, I, I'm thinking right now. Um, I, I, I didn't read the book, but from what Mike was reading the excerpts, I think a lot of times the crash course that we went into was how to do a brewery. And I think there's extreme value in how not to do it. And I appreciate the way that you're saying things is be very careful when you decide to do things a certain way. You've got to make sure these things are on point or else it can go go south. So like I said before, is sometimes the, the worst examples were the best teachers. So I think there's a lot of value in this type of book because people are always reading about how to do something. But the how not to do something is something that I think sometimes is even more valuable than the how to's. And that was just based on the couple excerpts that he had read to me. Yeah. And, and the parts of like not going to the distributor and starting a massive canning operation and trying to go that on a small scale, it was really just like echoing what we had learned, thankfully, in going to Colorado and doing this crash course and everything, because that was their model. And that was what we always want to do all along. What we're passionate about is seeing our customers and give, handing them our, our beers. So it, it, most of it was for me just like, Oh, thank God. Like he's not telling me to not do something I'm not <laughs> planning on doing. Okay. Thank God. Um, and, and it felt good to, to read those things. And, and I think it was a, a great book and a great read as far as what not to do for sure. Cause I mean, there's, there's almost more valuable in that in this industry than reading, you know, this is what I did and it worked. Yeah, it's like the underlining, like you want to, you want somebody to underline the stuff that, Hey, make sure you look at this. And when you underline that stuff and really present it and magnify it in a way, then those are usually the variables that pop up on people. And then that can be make or break. And so I think it's a great, great way to present what not to do. Yeah, well, I'm glad it helped you guys, um, and I'm hoping that the podcast and the book will help everybody else. But, the, I mean, at the end of the day, that was the point when I opened my brewery, and I, and I say this in the introduction, but uh, I read every book I get my hands on, and I read books about the guys who were successful. I read books about how to malt grains. I read books about like, what exactly hops meant and like how the, they were grown, and I tried to grow my own. I didn't read anything about 
not really about what to do when shit got shitty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, shit always gets shitty in this industry. And I think that's the big message that it, it's not. there's not going to be a time when shit didn't get shitty. There's going to be a time when you expected it, pivoted around it, learned what to do with it, and beat it. And the best guys that are in the industry that are killing it today are the ones that have overcome that, sometimes with luck, sometimes with being able to call a friend. Um, but guys like me and a lot of the other guys here in Texas that have gone out of business, we didn't have that resource. And we, we all started and just sort of like we're throwing darts at a board and many of us missed in a big way. And so I'm hoping that uh, one of the reasons I want to do this podcast with you guys is that I'm hoping that discussing it and, and talking about it gives not only our listeners the ability to avoid those pitfalls, but that you guys will take off and be you know the dominant force of craft beer in San Antonio. Sure. And so I hope that's the case. And I, I truly appreciate you guys spending the time. I think we may have gone a little bit longer than I had originally said, but I know that we had more beers than I originally promised. And so <laughs> I hope that that Thanks made up for it. Thanks for the Yeah. But anyway, thank you guys very much. And I uh, wish you guys all the best. Please tell us where to find Gather on the uh, Zuckerbergs. Yes, gatherbrewing.co is on the World Wide Web. And then the Zuckerberg is Gather Brewing on Facebook, I believe. My wife does all that. So just type in Gather Brewing. Yeah, you'll find it. And I know you have an Instagram as well because I saw it today. But yes, so yeah. Yep. yep. Find you guys. Should be Gather Brewing Co. And again, wish you guys the best of luck. Have a good night. Maybe let's have another beer. Thanks so much. Let's do it. buying your grains you know back in the day we only had two options and each of them knew it when there isn't any competition things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys bottom lines but brewery direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016 they sourced grains for quality and grains for price and as an extension of johnson brothers bakery supply their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled and now With warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com, or just type Brewery Direct into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. Hey guys, I want to thank you for sticking around. I appreciate you spending time with my guest tonight today. A couple of housekeeping things. I want to remind you that my book is available on Amazon, both on Kindle and in the paperback. And you'll see probably about another month, there'll be an audiobook. So if you don't like to read and for some reason you're burdened with loving to listen to my voice, you will get more of that um, in that audiobook. But again, thanks for sticking around and I look forward to the next podcast. Uh, peace out. See you soon. Free play. Media. If he were interested in anything his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine. Keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender post. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better. More professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at M2MCOMMS, M2MCOMS, look them up in San Francisco, 
or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today.